Gracious God, we pray that you would show us the way to walk, that you would show us the way of wisdom, that you would show us the Lord Jesus Christ, and that we would follow. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. We're beginning a new series this morning from the Epistle of James, and the first of the series is entitled, The End of Suffering. And our text this morning is James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Hear now the word of the Lord. My brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of any kind, consider it nothing but joy, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its full effect, so that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. This is the word of the Lord. In a hole in the ground there lived a hobbit. Call me Ishmael. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Those, of course, are all famous first lines of famous novels. It's important to have a good first line, to have a good introduction, a good opening. You want to grab your readers, you want to grab your audience right at the beginning of it. So a first line ought to be a good one. But here in the epistle of James, after offering the normal salutation of a first century epistle, James gives us this as his first line, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of any kind, consider it nothing but joy. Eh. Right? Not a great way to start, James. I mean, if James had an editor, the editor would have clearly told him, might not want to go like suffering, not a great way to start. You may want to start somewhere else. Why lead with that? That's not a great first line, James. But that's exactly where James starts. It's exactly where this epistle starts. It starts by providing a Christian perspective on suffering. And it's some really radical stuff. Because James tells us here, that God uses suffering for our spiritual good. That's the big idea of the sermon this morning. God uses suffering for our spiritual good. And in our time together this morning, I want you to see how God does that. How He does that. How He uses suffering in your life for your spiritual good. So let's look at what James has to say about suffering in this opening verses of his epistle. And what we'll see is that we can summarize the things he says under three main headings, three very important things about suffering. Here it is. Here's our outline. First of all, James tells us suffering is inevitable. Inevitable. Second, he tells us suffering is endurable. And then thirdly and finally, he tells us suffering is purposeful. Inevitable, endurable, purposeful. Let's look at those together this morning, beginning with the first one, suffering is inevitable. And where do we find that in our text this morning? Well, we find it right there in verse 2. My brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of any kind, consider it nothing but joy. James doesn't start out and say, if you face trials of any kinds, or if ever you face a trial. He says, when. It's not if. It's when, it's inevitable, we will all face trials in our lives. 
And that word trial there is a broad word. It has a broad semantic range. It can mean adversity. It can mean some type of outward testing that comes into your life. It can mean sickness and suffering, some type of suffering or struggle. It's broad in scope. And James's audience knew this well. For they had suffered greatly, and you will see that throughout the letter. In this letter, James testifies about this congregation, this dispersed group of people he's writing to, that they had been dragged into court, that they had faced poverty, verbal abuse, divisions in the church, structural economic injustices in society because of their faith. They faced general suffering. They faced personal physical illness and sickness, that type of suffering. This congregation knew what it was like to suffer. All kind of churches have a certain DNA, a certain origin that shapes them. I think of uh, my, my friends in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. It was a church that was created in the 1930s. It was created out of a battle over the creeping liberalism in the church, and they broke off, and they broke off in battle, and that has been part of their DNA as a church. They are a church built, in a sense, in a, this kind of combative spirit that they came out of. Well, this church to whom James was writing was born and forged out of suffering they knew what it was to suffer and we all know suffering is something that is distributed in inequitable ways we see that around us people who have to endure more and you wonder what's going on but one of the things that is true and certain is that we will all face a trial of some kind Suffering is inevitable. It's 100% guaranteed. Suffering is inevitable. Recently, I was listening to an interview on WXXI with um, a psychiatrist and this author who had written a book about the overdiagnosis of mental disorders, and they were having this debate. The author of the book, she was claiming that doctors, uh, particularly non-psychiatrists, medical doctors, uh, were using the DSM-5, which is a little manual about uh, mental disorders, that they were using it improperly, that they were over-diagnosing mental disorders in society. And part of the thing she was citing was the increase in the number of Americans who have been diagnosed with a mental disorder, now one in four Americans, one out of every four. And, of course, there was a psychiatrist on the other side. And what he was saying back to this kind of argument that this was overdiagnosed, he was saying, well, we all know that 100% of the U.S. population will be diagnosed with some type of physical illness somewhere in their life. One out of one, out of every one Americans, right? So is it so absurd to think that our mental health is a similar type of thing, that somewhere, somewhere along the line, something is going to break down for some period of time, and we will have some type of disorder like that in our lives. We will experience that. And you see his point. And it's true, right? We're all going to have some diagnosis in our lives. Something is going to go physically wrong. Suffering is inevitable, and James tells us that In this epistle, he says one out of every one Christian will have to face trial of some kind. It's inevitable, not if, but when. And that is practically very helpful. It might be hard for us to hear, but it's practically very helpful because it it refutes a variety of errors. 
It refutes the error and the wrong theology that teaches that somehow being a Christian shelters you from suffering, as if that's one of the promises of the gospel, some sense of prosperity and good health is inherent in being a Christian. Well, James says, no, that's not true. In fact, we might argue the opposite is true for Christians. Maybe it makes it more likely that we are to suffer. A second error it refutes is the idea that suffering is some sign of God's disfavor in your life, that you've done something wrong. Well, that's clearly not the case because we will all face it. And in fact, again, I could argue maybe it's the opposite. Job suffered, but not because he did anything wrong. The apostles all suffered, not because they did anything wrong. Jesus, who was perfect in every way, suffered, not because he did anything wrong. Suffering was inevitable. And third, it alerts us of our need to be prepared for suffering. If one out of one, every one Christian, will face suffering, well, we best get ready. We best be prepared. We have a guy in the church at Tim Hughes. He goes on these uh, kind of crazy vacations where he kind of physically stretches himself. He's on one right now. And when he knows that they're coming up, he trains for them. He prepares for them. He did that before this most recent one. That's what James is telling us, kind of saying, it's going to happen. Be prepared. Get ready. Get ready to endure suffering because suffering is inevitable. And that brings us to point number two in the sermon. Suffering is not only inevitable. James tells us, point number two, that suffering is endurable. It's endurable. Well, where do we find that in the text? Verse 3. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. You know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. The Greek word for endurance there is the word hupomone. And it's a word that can be translated in a variety of ways. It's endurance as it is in the NRSV, steadfastness fortitude, constancy, perseverance, patience. Craig Blomberg uh, describes hupomone as, quote, not a passive virtue, but a steady clinging to the truth within any situation. Another commentator describes it as militant patience. Another commentator as faith stretched out. A Greek lexicon defines the word as the capacity to continue to bear up under difficult circumstances. And finally, one last commentator describes it as staying power, the nerve to hold fast. That's hupomone. That's endurance. And you could bring up a lot of imagery, right? Illustrations of that. You could think of a tower defense game, right? You're, you're in a fortress and there's an onslaught, a horde coming on and you're staying put, holding ground against it. It's football season. You could think of an offensive lineman facing an all-out blitz, holding the ground, protecting the line. You could think of the 300 Spartans at Thermopylae, right? Uh, Holding against this great horde, holding fast, holding your ground. And James says we can do that with suffering. We can build that type of endurance. Suffering is endurable. And if it's inevitable, don't we want it to be endurable? 
And don't you want to have that type of ability to hold your ground, that militant patience, to have the nerve to hold fast? Well, James tells us good news. He tells us you can have that. You can find that. You can have that endurance to face the inevitable. So the question comes up, how do we get that? How do we get that endurance? Well, then it kind of comes to the bad news. Because what James tells us is that the only way to really train for it, the only way to build endurance, to make suffering endurable, is to learn how to suffer. You have to face suffering to endure suffering, to grow stronger in being able to make it endurable. And that's not all that foreign to us. If we think about things that happen, sometimes you only learn how to deal with something by facing the real thing. You can think about it, you can do drills about it, but you don't know until you have gone through it. We all watched the whole controversy over what happened in Uvalde, right? The police response to that situation. Well, you can go through a million drills about that. You can ask anybody in police and military background, but unless you've been in their real situation, in a live event, that is when you know what you're going to do. It's kind of like our own immune system. Our immune system grows stronger. It reacts by being exposed to an active or inactive form of a virus, right? It builds up immunity. Our own immune system has to deal with it first, has to deal with the real thing in a sense in order to build endurance against that thing. Suffering builds endurance for suffering. And I can tell you, as a pastor, I have seen that firsthand so many times. I have seen it in ministering to people who suffer. They are the strongest. They are the best at enduring suffering. I have seen that, and I can tell you, I've seen it because I've seen it recently. At Hupamone. I saw it in our sister Kathy, and I saw it in, in Dale, and I see it in Dale. He's going to kill me for saying that, but it's true. It's a testimony. It's not something anyone wants in their life or asks for. But the way suffering becomes endurable is how we, we, the way we are able to do that is by experiencing it and becoming stronger through it. That's how James can say suffering is a good thing, a quote-unquote good thing. That's how we can consider it as joy, right? It seems crazy. He's not saying feel happy about it. He's not a masochist. He's not saying, you know, go out and, and try to seek it out so you can get stronger. He's not saying that. Don't go seek it out. But what he is saying is that when it inevitably comes in your life, you can consider this as something good, because what it is doing is making you stronger. Building up your endurance so that you can endure suffering. He's teaching us we can do it. We can stand our ground. He's teaching us that suffering is endurable. And this too has practical benefits for us in our lives. First, it can help us learn one important lesson. We can't control our circumstances. We don't have control over our circumstances. But we do have control over ourselves, our response to it. 
It's one of the things I teach, I try to teach my children, right? You can't control another person's behavior. You can't control the circumstances you're in. Sometimes you might be able to affect things, but a lot of times you can't. But all you can control is you, how you will respond to something. And James is telling us that about suffering. That we can learn to respond to suffering in ways that demonstrate an ability to, to persevere and endure it. There's an illustration of this in a, in a movie, uh, the movie Silver Linings Playbook. And it's a movie about this guy named Pat, and he's struggling with mental illness, and, and he, he, he lost his job because of it, he lost his house because of it, he lost his, his wife because of it. As he would encounter things, he would often go off into these kind of emotional tirades. He would do destructive things that made his life worse. And the movie's about him trying to overcome that, deal with that. And he's learning and he's growing. He's becoming better at managing all those things. And then there's this scene in the movie where he's with his brother, Jake. And Jake is like, you know, he's abandoned uh, Pat. He's never been there for him. He likes to twist the knife into, into his brother, and in this one scene, they're there together, and, and, you know, and Jake knows how much Pat has lost. And in this one scene, Jake kind of starts talking to him about how great he's doing at his job, how he's just bought a new house and gotten engaged, you know, and he's really kind of twisting the knife, and you can see it in the, in the pathos of the scene. And earlier in the movie, that would have set Pat off into some type of tirade. But in that moment, and it's a great scene, and it's a great line, he looks at his brother Jake, and he says, I've got nothing but love for you, brother. And he gives him a hug. And it was just this moment where he kind of just steeled himself against it, was able to cope with it. He can't change that his brother's a jerk. But he can't change his response to it. And that's what James is telling us about suffering. We may not be able to change the circumstances, but we can control ourselves in it. And that's one of the things that helps us to make suffering endurable. And a second practical benefit of this teaching is that it reminds us that bailing out builds nothing. That bailing out builds nothing. You see, if you bail out, you never build endurance. And sometimes the way we deal with difficult circumstances, with trials and suffering in our life, is to try to run from them, to bail out from them. Jim uh, Samra, in his commentary, writes this. He says, Consider how many times we are tempted to take the easy way out of a difficult situation. A romantic relationship hits rough waters, so we withdraw. Our boss is giving us a hard time at work, so we look for a new job. We don't get along well with our neighbors, so we start praying that they would move. Our extended family gets on our nerves on vacation, so we rent our own room to get away from them. In the very big trials and daily small trials, we can be tempted to insulate ourselves or escape from the struggles. And I'm not saying there's never a time to get out, to move on. But do you see what he's saying? And have you ever done that? Have you ever just bailed out instead of going through it? I've done that. And maybe sometimes I was right in doing that, but I know sometimes I was wrong in doing that. Because it builds nothing in you. It doesn't make you better prepared for the next time stuff goes wrong. And one out of one, every one Christian, stuff's going to go wrong. It doesn't make you any stronger. 
I can't tell you how many articles I've read about pastors leaving the calling of being a pastor. And don't get me wrong, I haven't, you know, I fantasized about it too. And sometimes I've done that, even in my career. I, th- I think about that looking back, and I'm like, you know, no, I, I, no. We don't grow, right? Bailing out doesn't grow us. Samra concludes in this piece, he says, We might relieve some of the pain, but we certainly will not learn to persevere. Trials alone do not bring maturity. It's only as we persevere through struggles that we grow. If we seek to insulate ourselves from any difficult circumstances, we'll never experience the growth God wants us to have. James tells us suffering is endurable. But the way you build that endurance is by dealing and learning to deal with suffering. Suffering is inevitable. Suffering is endurable. And third and finally this morning, suffering is purposeful. Suffering is purposeful. Now where do we find that in the text? Right in verse 4. And let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing, James says. The New English translation puts it this way. And let endurance have its perfect effect so that you will be perfect and complete, not deficient in anything. That Greek word translated as mature or perfect is the word teleos. And it means bringing something to its end, bringing something to its finish, crossing the finish line, if you will, bringing it to fruition. And according to James, the end, the purpose of suffering and learning endurance from suffering, the thing that's made perfect in that, brought to its end, is us. We are made perfect by suffering. We are made complete by suffering. That's what James says. He tells us that suffering has a purpose, that there is an end to suffering, and that end is our spiritual maturity, our spiritual completeness, our spiritual wholeness. Alexander Solzhenitsyn wrote this of the Russian people and their suffering. He said, There is no more than the ancient truth, this is no more than the ancient truth, that strength of character comes from suffering and adversity. Oppressed and driven as they are by constant poverty, it is inevitable that many of our people are crushed, debased, warped, or dehumanized. But direct oppression can give birth to a contrary process too a process of spiritual ascent, even of soaring flight. What was he saying? He was saying that that suffering faced by the Russian people had this spiritual element that was almost kind of contrary to everything we could think of, that it was almost uplifting. It almost it built a character of a completeness, a perfection, a maturity in them, an ability to endure and sustain incredible things. And James is saying a very similar thing. He's saying suffering that is inevitable, that is endurable, is also used to make us complete, to make us the person God has called us to be. Now again, let's not go crazy, go off the rails here with that and come to some you know, improper conclusions about that. Again, we're not seeking out suffering for the sake of this, right? We're not going looking for it. 
Nor should this be used as some type of callous excuse to ignore suffering or or to try to stop alleviating it in, in the poor and the hungry and those type of things. That's kind of a ridiculous way. So what is James saying? I think he's telling us a truth we all know. That is, suffering, trials, adversity has a way of shaping us that ease and success have no ability to do. Isn't that true? And it makes you think about things. Let me ask you a question. Would the world be a better place without suffering? Now, at one level, you want to answer that question. Well, yes, of course, Pastor. Don't we want to alleviate all suffering? But would it? Would the world be a better place if we eliminate all suffering? Well, I guess it might depend on how we do that. How about Huxley's Brave New World? Everyone takes their soma and they feel happy. Is that a better world? How about Lowry's The Giver in a world where pain is eliminated? Was it a better world? Would you be you without the suffering and trials you have faced in your life? Would you be you? Would you be the person that you are? In the Leadership Journal, John Ortberg, he discusses how adverse situations help us grow, how they make us who we are, they build spiritual character. And he references the psychologist Jonathan Haidt, a hypothetical that Jonathan Haidt uses. Now think about this. This is, what, this is what it is. Imagine that you have a child, and for five minutes you're given a script of what will be that child's life. You get an eraser. You can edit it. You can take out whatever you want. You read that your child will have a learning disability in grade school. Reading, which comes easily for some kids, will be laborious for yours. In high school, your kid will make a great circle of friends, then one of them will die of cancer. After high school, this child will actually get into the college they wanted to attend. While there, there will be a car crash, and your child will lose a leg and go through difficult depression. A few years later, your child will get a great job, then lose that job in an economic downturn. Your child will get married, but then go through the grief of separation. You get this script for your child's life, and you have five minutes to edit it. What would you erase? Now, what would you erase? I'm a parent. And if you're a parent, you're thinking, I erase all those terrible things in my kid's life. Right? That's where you go. But what would that do? He concludes, if you could wave a wand, if you could erase every failure, setback, suffering, and pain, are you sure it would be a good idea? Would it cause your child to grow up to be better and stronger, more generous person? Is it possible that in some way people actually need adversity, setbacks, maybe even something like trauma to reach the fullest level of development and growth? And James answers that question here in this text with a resounding yes, we need it to be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. Let me give you another example. This comes from John Yates. 
See if you can guess who this is. When he was seven years of age, his family was forced out of their home and he went to work. When he was nine, his mother died. He wanted to go to law school, but he didn't have the education. At age 23, he went into debt to be a partner in a small store. Three years later, the business partner died, and the resulting debt took years to repay. When he was 28, after courting a girl for four years, he asked her to marry him, and she turned him down. On his third try, he was elected to Congress at age 37, but then failed to be re-elected. His son died at age four. When this man was 45, he ran for Senate, and he lost. At age 47, he ran for the vice presidency, and he lost. Anyone know who that is? Who was? Abe Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln was elected president at age 51 and then faced the trauma of the Civil, Civil War. Would Lincoln have been the great president, in my mind, the greatest president we ever had, if he hadn't faced those trials? that made him who he was, that prepared him and shaped him. Now I will confess to you, I don't understand all of how this works out in our lives and in God's, and the mystery of God's will. I don't. But I know what James is telling us here in this text, in these verses. He's telling us that suffering is used by God to bring us to spiritual maturity and perfection. That he's telling us that suffering is purposeful. That it has an end to it. And ultimately, we see that end in the person of Jesus Christ. We see it manifested in Jesus. Listen to the echoes. When the book of Hebrews speaks about Jesus, listen to the echoes between Hebrews and what we just read in James. Speaking about Jesus, Hebrews 5.8. Although he was a son, he learned, he trained, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And having been made perfect, the same word in, in James, having been made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey. Hebrews chapter 12, 1 and 3. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely, and let us run with perseverance, with endurance, the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the sake of the joy, the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, disregarding its shame, and has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such hostility against himself from sinners, so that you may not grow weary or lose heart. Think about that. In a brain-twisting way, that turns your, 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 your noggin into a, to a pretzel, right? Jesus, who was perfect, is perfect, always will perfect, was, will be perfect, was made perfect through suffering. That's what the Scripture tells us about our Lord. Suffering was purposeful in the life of Christ. It's purposeful in our lives. Suffering is inevitable. It is endurable. It's purposeful. James tells us that suffering is for our spiritual good. And perhaps the only way we can ever really grasp any part of this, the only way we could ever make sense out of that crazy first line of James's epistle, consider it joy when you suffer. The only way I think we can really get a hold of that is by looking to Jesus. 
by looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the sake of the joy that was set before Him, endured the cross. For in Jesus and in Him alone is found the end of suffering. Let's pray. O God, we thank You for these challenging words this morning. Help us, O Lord, to learn to endure suffering, to allow it to do its work in our lives, and help us to always look to Christ, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.